Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking who. Eat that one. Eat that camera. Eat it. You know you want to. Um... Fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the diabolical task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally diabolic three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I am so diabolical. (laughs) As we knew. (laughs) And finally, we have another expert panelist who's more knowledgeable than, but not nearly as evil as I, Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. Yes. So before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page. It's not so new anymore. It's available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. (laughs) We know you have them. You keep telling us this. In fact, you call us in the dead of night to tell us this. And frankly, we're getting sick of it. We're going to put a restraining order on you as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. This time we're discussing a milestone in the Target range, the last book to go out under the Target imprint, John Peel's Evil of the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, Evil of the Daleks, adapted by John Peel from the script by David Whitaker that aired from 52067 to 7167, published by Target Books in August 1993. As of this recording in July of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 288 pages. To understand the seemingly apocalyptic nature of the story, you have to understand what was going on at the time with the production of the show, and why the story was written to begin with. What I'm about to tell you is heavily paraphrased from Shannon Sullivan's excellent site, A Brief History of Time, at shannonsullivan.com forward slash drwho. According to Sullivan, During the production of Power of the Daleks, Terry Nation approached the BBC about a spin-off series featuring the Daleks by themselves. When they turned him down, he decided to try the American market, equally unsuccessfully, even though all they knew of the Daleks were from the two theatrical features with Peter Cushing, which weren't exactly successes over here. Despite this being ultimately unsuccessful, the production team decided to phase the Daleks out of the series once and for all. And since Nation was too busy to write their final serial, David Whittaker was tapped to do it instead, because, of course, he was so good at it. He did Power of the Daleks. 
And in the background, by the way, if you can hear it at all, those are the Daleks constructing all those weird booby traps in Maxtable's house. Actually, it's just local construction, but who cares? We're going to dream. Because otherwise, why would those booby traps be there? All right, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Whitaker was then asked to take Ben and Polly out of his early drafts and to come up with a strong female character much the same way that the writers of The Faceless Ones were asked so that the producers would have a choice of potential new companions. When Pauline Collins turned down the offer to become a regular, Victoria became the new companion by default. Victoria was originally going to be played by another actress, but two days later, the late Deborah Watling was cast instead. Although this was always intended to be the final end of the Daleks, the BBC head of drama, Sidney Newman, asked director Derek Martinus to include some indication that the Daleks might have survived, just in case the BBC wanted to bring them back, because who wouldn't? Hence, the final shot, which of course doesn't exist, but apparently shows the Emperor Dalek with its lights still blinking and it hanging on to life, as Emperor Daleks everywhere do. Good thing they did this, too, since, of course, that would allow them to bring back in 1972 the Daleks with Day of the Daleks, but that's a story for another time. John Peel we've already discussed at length in our episodes about uh, the chase, in our live episode at Chicago TARDIS, and also our Power of the Daleks story. And our first interview with John Peel was released around that same time. We also have a second interview with John Peel coming out soon, which I conducted this Sunday, including a discussion of this book and some of his, shall we say, more (laughs) controversial later works. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. We may indeed get to those if we decide to go beyond the Target books and go into first the Virgin books and then the BBC books. That's a long way down the road, but if we ever get to War of the Daleks... Boy, howdy, will we have a lot to say about That might be a fun extra bonus That one. could be a fun extra bonus one, but I don't think John would ever speak to us again if yes. we did it. Oh. Uh, I don't know. He's actually pretty good about criticism. Um, as we discovered in our interview with John Peel last time, though, the main reasons that the story was not novelized sooner was that David Whitaker had died in 1980, which meant, of course, he couldn't do it. And any books written about the Daleks always require a larger sum than usual given to the nation estate out of the writer's own compensation. That's one of many complex reasons why, to this day, there's no official release of Resurrection of the Daleks or Revelation of the Daleks. It's not just Eric Sayward dragging his feet, even though, let's be honest, Eric Sayward does drag his feet. He said he'd do it. There were several times where he had agreed to do it, but it's this stipulation. He took the advance like twice, but then didn't do it, because it was so much smaller than any of the other advances. Peel is one of the only writers willing to work under these conditions, and Power and Evil were commissioned roughly around the same time, and much as he did with the two volumes of Dalek's Master Plan, he wrote them back to back, and they were released within months of each other in August of 1993. The back cover. Dalton, why don't you read the back cover for us, if you would? The evil of the Daleks. The Daleks tell me I'm going to do something for them. Something I would rather die than do. Stranded in Victorian London, separated from his TARDIS, and forced to cooperate with the Daleks, it seems that the Doctor's luck has finally run out. The Daleks are searching for the elusive human factor, and want the Doctor to help them find it. With Victoria and Jamie held captive, the Doctor has no choice. 
An army of Daleks stands poised to conquer the universe. Will the human factor be their ultimate weapon? This is a brand new novelization of a classic Dalek story, and is the first story to feature Victoria as a companion. Yes. Well, it's, it's not official until you're on the fucking TARDIS. So. <laughs> Which is, well, that's true. They were giving themselves some wiggle room because they yeah. could have returned her to Victorian yes. England and then started the new season with a new. I season. for for me. You guys might have a different opinion about this, but for me, I feel like they're not a companion until the Doctor, like, officially, like, oh, welcomes them to the team in a way, kind oh. of. If that's the case, then you're going to have some real trouble with Liz Shaw. Mm. Yeah, because... Or she... the, all the unit guys. Oh, well, yeah. because by, by that fact, anybody who helped the Doctor on any of these stories is a companion. Is River Song a companion? Well, that's a whole... <laughs> that's a whole other... I think I think it's interesting yeah. because I th- I think I mean Victoria obviously is a companion because she does travel yeah. with him, but when at what point do they become a companion? If you're just reading the stories, because you know there's stories where they do into someone because they're returning them to their own time and place. Yeah, so in Victoria's case, that would be because you're. Here's this crater you used to live in. <laughs> Your dad's dead. Uh, but, but no, you Everything know. Everything you like, owned is gone. I feel like by the end of this this story, by the end of the book, once the doctor, you know, once her father is dead and he said, we've, we've decided to take care of her, then she's the companion. Yeah. Before that, she is she is a, a B player, not even a B player, she's an A player in the story, but we've had many characters that were secondary characters that at the end of the book, they were gone. We don't see them again. Samantha Briggs. Hi. You know? There's, there's a parallel universe where... Um, and that there's a draft of this where Victoria lives and Kemmel lives. Mm-hmm. Ah. And they just get ah. together at the end <laughs> and are dropped off somewhere. Oh and then, like, foreshadowing Perry and Yurkanos or something like that. <laughs> but Nella, you know, you know, she can whine and flirt and he can just be silent <laughs> and muscular and she could be very satisfied. Well, she probably yeah. would be. Sonny Caldenez is quite tall and you know what they say about tall men. Um, the thing is, though, that would be such a parallel universe that it would be a Doctor Who where they're not having any sort of issue with a female Doctor at this point at all. They probably already had one by the 70s, so it would have to be that liberal. Oh, an alternate timeline. Yeah, an alternate timeline. Because a man of color and a Victorian woman? (gasps) Heaven for fun. Well, and I think that is interesting. You know, this is a point I was going to bring up, Victoria. I think um, her friendship with Kemmel, and I'm not sure how we pronounce it, is it? pronounce Kemmel? That's Kemmel. how I was that's, pronouncing it. I think in the audio that's how it is. But as much of a stereotype as he is, it's it's interesting that Victoria does not treat him like the noble savage that a Victorian woman would, you know, especially yeah. one of her upbringing and social class. Yeah. So there there is an element of progressivism and yeah, I was looking forward to Allison being here. Yeah, because I wanted to see what she thought of that and of Jamie's evolution from third-rate companion to major yes. player. Because this ah. is the story where that happens. Ah. So good, mm-hmm. so good. Finally, it does. Yeah, it's worth waiting for. What do you think? Yeah, mm-hmm. reading John Peel is just so dense, so much more interesting. Yes. Um, 
I didn't know where it was going. There were so many instances in the here where I thought it was going one way. I thought something else was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, from a lot of the books we've read, they get kind of formulaic so I can figure it out. But there was so much in this one that I hadn't figured out and I didn't ruin it for myself. Um, I really, really enjoyed this book. Good. Um, like probably one of the... F- my favorite that I've read. Good. And, I, and I've read the lion's share of the ones that we've done. More so than power, or would you say they're uh, on a level, or...? I... Different. Mm-hmm. Different. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very different. I just, I feel like there was so much more going on in this one. Mm-hmm. It felt like three distinct parts. Yes. Um, and so that really helped carry it, and helped hold my interest throughout... Mm-hmm. Um, because you think that it's going to end, you think that something's going to change, yeah. or something's going to break, give way, and it, you know, it takes a left turn. Mm-hmm. And that was refreshing and really just like, yes, this is what I want. What this were, is what I want everything to be. What were some of the left turns or surprises that like really stood out to you? Because I think we both kind of were more familiar with the story before we read yeah. the novelization, so I'd be very interested to hear that. Um, uh, Terrell or Terrell or whatever... Um, I initially thought that he was going to be like some cybernetic body that had a Dalek. Mm-hmm. Oh. And not like a human that was under control, um, which would have explained the weird behavior. But mm-hmm. in a way, it ended up being that. He, he had, um, you know, was being controlled by Dalek, so him acting that way. So not in new series terms, in other words. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was going on. Um... Initially, Kimmel, I, I thought, was just going to be like this big bad that something happened to. And ultimately, that scene with he and Jamie fighting and Jamie uh, saving him and them kind of reconciling and beginning to help each other. Um, even, like, in his initial description, he was kind of described as, as like, the the silent oaf that mm-hmm. was, like, good. But I, I could have still have seen him going bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was nice to see, and, and, and I was actually upset that he died. because yes. um, I liked him. I really mm-hmm. liked him. And, um, let me see if I can think of something else that there was just, there was just, like, so many things that just, it just kept coming, but I, I loved it. And as opposed to a lot of the other books that were quick reads, easy reads, whatever, this one, I, I like really took time with and really like dove into um some of the other john peel books they're they're dense but it's even if i enjoy the reading and i enjoy what he's getting at and saying and the descriptions sometimes it really is just like okay get to the point yeah but this one it seemed like there was so much in there that really was pertinent information and really like I wanted it. I wasn't upset by it. I'm wondering if that's kind of a a function of you feeling the way you did about John Peel books that were adapting Terry Nation scripts versus David Whitaker scripts. Because David Whitaker tends to have everything in place. Well, the other thing is, is you do have, um, these books were written in 1993, and the targets had been pretty much all but done. I mean, these were the last ones, but the last one had been several years before. And they had consciously decided to take the approach because this by this point the new adventures which are like the original novel set yeah. for the classic series were in full force and doing really well and they had that approximately like 280 to 300 page yeah. count 
and so there I mean, was he had written the and, first one, and he had written the first one. So there was kind of an expectation that we would do these like a new adventure right. with that level of depth to it. So I would imagine that had Chase and Master Plan been done. Under the original. Under, in 1993 or 1994, we would have seen that extra level of detail, but they, they were still trying to condense them to those. So I think part of it is just a fluke of when the timing came out. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah like when you, were, when you were saying that this was one the last Target book released, I was like, how? What? <laughs> this is amazing. If they were all like this, they, they would run be... out of stories. Yeah. But like, of all the... Seeing seeing the way this is written and seeing how much I liked it and how good it was, I was like, how is this the last one? Yeah. How is this story not something that was novelized years before? This is amazing. Yeah, it's and it has to do with rights and, and all these things and just the way things got... I think, especially once we start the Pertwee stuff, he's going to really... I'm, I'm really excited to see what you think of that. Because <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a golden age of targets there well, especially when something like day of the daleks mm. i mean terry terrence dix really does an amazing job when i got all the malcolm hulk stuff so right. all those fun stuff to look yeah Absolutely. yeah it just it's just like this is a great story how was this not novelized before but but here hearing the history and and knowing kind of the rights and things like that it makes sense but i'm just like you could have written this in the 70s and i would have if I was alive then and a kid, I would have been all over it. Though, if we're going with what uh, Trey was saying, I doubt it would have been as, as well written. Right. Yeah. Right. It needed that. There's part of me that almost would, would love to see a bunch of those novelizations from the late the late 70s, early 80s be redone. Yes. Yeah. In this style and see what could be done. Cause yeah. There's, Flesh there's, it out. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of stories that, that, that would have benefited from that. Except doing that would probably reveal some of the plot holes. Because I've been thinking about how to do that with Macrotera, and it's like, there's no way to do it. <laughs> You'd end up exposing a lot of plot holes that should <laughs> should not be exposed. That and a story like this, the original story was seven parts. It was seven episodes. So you kind of need that extra stuff. And it's one of the few David Whitaker scripts that's at all padded. Mm-hmm. And I found that John really had an issue probably with this book because unlike Power, it it shows its padding. Mm-hmm. The subplot with Terrell, that's padding. The middle section in the house. Oh god, is, oh, has it's a, lot. a little long. I mean, I think one of the things that I I'm not sure what my opinion of of this book is. Um, on one level, everything that Dalton says, I agree with. It's it's obviously a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Um, as the story, especially like if I'm looking at the story itself. There are so many things that don't make sense to me in terms of like character motivations. Um, I think Peel does a really good job of looking at the original scripts and saying, this didn't make sense. We don't know what happened to this character. And he, you know, just like a, like a minor thing, for example, like in the TV version, there's nothing, you know, the doctor says to Molly and Ruth and Terrell, get out of the house. Yeah. Here, you know, but we also know that there are other servants in the house. Yes. Here, Peel, here, Peel makes the takes the time to say, yes. "Let's deal with that." I mean, yeah. there's there've been whole essays about why would in Maxwell's house a picture of um, Waterfield's mother. wife being in there, and there have been fan- and he actually explains it. So yeah. there's a lot of those things that. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the book. Um, I just think it's a really weird story, and it's one that I've always been a bit ambivalent about. It is strange, mainly because it's barely a Dalek story. It's barely a Doctor Who story. (laughs) That's true. That is true. 
And, 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 and what I mean by that is, well, I know I think it's a Doctor Who story. I, you know, before Stephen Moffat came and said Doctor Who's this big fairy tale with sci-fi trappings, you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of stories in the classic canon that would say this is a fairy tale right. with sci-fi trappings. Evil of the Daleks does meet that description. It really is, because you've got this whole fantastical thing of time travel through mirrors and static electricity. Mm. I think John Peel himself even wrote an essay about that, saying there's so many fantastical elements in mm -hmm. this, it makes no scientific sense whatsoever. Well, and just even something like the human factor versus the Dalek yes. factor. And, and and recording it on silver wire with a laser beam. And that you beam. could somehow imprint things. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful dramatic conceit, but if you think about it too much, and, and there's bits where you can see... Um, Peel's trying to wrestle with that and yes. trying to make it more palatable. But that's, I guess, I guess it's one of those stories that had such a reputation that, you know, when I first read the book in 93, I had seen the second episode that survives, and I kind of knew that how things turned out, but the rest was unknowable to me. And I guess I didn't enjoy it as much as Power. I really liked Power of the Daleks. I, I, even with the reconstructions, I, per, I vastly prefer Power of the Daleks. Yeah. But that kind of goes against the received fan wisdom. Which is weird, because power is the stronger story. With power, the, it's so tightly plotted that everything is relentless to that ending. And the only thing that I can think of is, again, until we get all the episodes recovered, and that'll probably never happen, is that power may be the better story, evil may well have been better television. Probably. Because they had, you know, BBC does Victorian era stuff very well, so I'm sure the, set, from the little bit we see, the, the, the sets were amazing, the costumes were good, they got all the thespianic actors doing their thing. Um, the model work that does exist of the Civil War at the end was really good and visually spectacular for its time. As a whole, Derek Martinez is much more of a stylistic um, director than Christopher Barry was, so I'm... I'm that might be the case. We're looking at these from books and story, and they're in, in audio reconstructions, and power probably edges it out. But maybe in terms of if you're looking at the whole thing with television as a piece of television, there may be good reason why evil had that reputation. In fact, I asked Peel about that. Um, one of our listeners said, which one up do you have strong memories of the two stories? And he said, I remember power quite vividly. Evil... Um, I'd gone off Doctor Who by that point for a little bit because I was pissed off that Troughton had been cast. <laughs> he really did not like Troughton at the time he was a teenager. Um, so he didn't watch all of Evil. Interesting. So he didn't get... I think he may have watched the repeat when they did it for the uh, beginning of, uh, what, season six? Yeah, he may have watched the repeat, but mm -hmm. he says that he doesn't have right. good memories of it. So he actually worked from scripts. I think he said that he may have watched the existing episode, but he wasn't sure. So he's going basically the way we have gone, right. just from the scripts and what the scripts had to say. And, and those are probably going to be the camera scripts, so those are probably going to be Derek Martinez's scripts. So, hmm. so yeah, I think this one probably was just visually stunning, especially when you listen to the soundtrack of it, that the musical score is beautiful. However, that's not on the page. What's on the page is what John Peel has chosen to translate to it, and that means we're kind of seeing the story warts and all, when you probably would not have noticed the warts. Well, there's, yeah, there's things that you would forget about, but, I mean, I think the whole, the whole opening, all the stuff set in contemporary 60s London is, like, one of my notes here is, what sort of story does this want to be? Yeah. 
And it starts off as sort of like this sort of caper. Sherlock Holmes, they even bring up. Sherlock it? Holmes and, and these weird matchbox things. And he, he picked up the clues, the delicate clues yes. that we did not think he would get. He did get. The Doctor is the man. Yes. <laughs> yes. So speaking of picking up on clues, is Perry a homo? <laughs> that is a good question. I think so. I think he is. I mean, he's certainly an esthete. Mm-hmm. And he has the boutonniere of the Oscar Wilde thing. And then, so you get the bit in the tree color. And again, I can't remember if it's a TV series or this where Perry's looking and the doctor's like, Jamie, this man is watching me. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it's, it's in, here in a too. milk bar. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it, it, I don't think it's said quite the same way, but it's still that like, what? Do you see this man watching us? Is he, <laughs> is he looking at you or looking at... <laughs> mm-hmm. And they are in that one area of London that could, you know, yeah, very possibly... Well because they did mention... Did I put that in my notes? When they were worried about the area? And he said, we're either going to run into rockers or we're going to run into... Um, Mods, teddy boys. Teddy boys. <laughs> yes. And it's like, teddy boys? Good God. Okay, yeah, that's that's obviously not in the original. Um, listeners, if you're familiar with the movie Quadrophenia, you already know about rivalry between rockers and the mods. You may not have heard about Teddy Boys. This was a movement in the 1950s of young people associated first with rock and roll, and then, oddly enough, with jazz, to wear Edwardian clothing that their grandparents would have worn at the turn of the century. <laughs> Edwardian was shortened to Teddy. So, Teddy Boys. So, the Doctor's wrong on both counts. 1966 is a little too late for Teddy Boys, unless there was a showing of the Blackboard Jungle going on, because they would riot at those for some reason. And it's still a little too early for Mods and Rockers. Just, just showing how, like, that sounds so bizarre, but the time scale would be no different from kids dressing up in 60s clothes like hippies or something. That is right. true. That is true. You know, that's, that's how much relative time has passed. No, I agree. But, um, that's, that so, goes it's not as to, outlandish as you would think. No. But it might explain Perry's dress, because he is right. working in a Victoriana shop. Right, and, and also maybe why Waterfield gets away with his anachronistic clothing, and he's just... Which they think is an act. But I, th- I think that, yeah. I mean... Just these weirdos. The tree color scenes, like, there's... It's saucy in there. The like, waitress rubbing up on Jamie. And that's not in the that's not in the thing, because in the, in the original, first of all, like, they don't have much with all the French, you know, even though it's called tree color, you think it would. But they actually had, a, like, the Beatles paperback writer and the nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. And there's a bit where it's a screen, one of the screen caps is, like, these women wearing what was in the fashionable, like, these plaid skirts. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, they're all, like, fawning over and he's like, oh, if only the Laird could see this. <laughs> but, but I think it's interesting, there is this extra level of sauciness to it and again they wouldn't have gotten away with it except the new adventures had already been doing that there's an i mean transit has already been published by this point which has this infamous line where there's a prostitute you know in the future and there's a line and this is a doctor who book it's just, you know yeah wholesome and it says she ate some nuts to get the semen taste out of her mouth yeah that was actually in a Doctor Who book. It's also notable as the first Doctor Who book to use the word fuck, if I remember I correctly. I think so, right. And so there was a lot of... He was trying to be like William Gibson in it and try to do this sort of Doctor Who cyberpunk there thing. There is a Dalek connection. Ben Aronovich was the writer of yep. that book, and he wrote Remembrance of the Daleks, which he also novelized. So and that's a good one. But, but right now, it's kind of like a sense that it's not kids who are reading these books. It's teenagers and it's young a little adults older and fanboys. Yeah. And so they're, they're upping... They're getting away with things that they wouldn't have gotten away with. Or they ever. 
fan service. Yeah, I mean we're not we're not too far away from the aforementioned you know STD ridden companion. Oh. That would be two years from. Yeah, yeah, it would be. It would be. So we're not far from it. That being said, John Peel is a little less. Uh, uh, he's a little less likely to put that sort of thing in. So what is the fact that we find all the, the he got he got some grief from people with the first new adventure book with like the topless prostitutes in the temple and they're like underage or something which is ridiculous because if we're talking historically that may would have made sense wouldn't it i think that's i think that's what he would have said about that so in this parallel universe of (laughs) pauline collins staying on how does she fit into the narrative of evil the daleks i don't think she does I think what would have happened is they would have cut out the Victoria Waterfield part entirely and figured out some other way to get the human factor. Or maybe they would have kidnapped They Sam. would have just kidnapped her. Her, and, and, they, and they, they're chasing, and then, yeah, that, that's how you would have done And that. that would have made sense because you could have done that at the very beginning of Evil of the Daleks if she had followed them and said, oh, no, wait, I want to come with you after all. The Daleks get her. And they take her back to Victorian mm. times. Though, why would they take her back to Victorian times? Yeah, it that that kind of falls apart. Yeah, that, that hmm. was yeah. But then, yeah, that that some of because he just said Ben and Polly were in episode two. So would they have just like stayed behind the sixties and like rushed in, almost doing what Perry does? And that would they would have been just they were left there? they were contracted all the way up through episode two. So God only knows. Because that would be that's that would be the logical place for them to be dropped off. Yeah, I have no idea what they would have done. It would be fascinating to find the original scripts, but John was only given the um, the shooting scripts. Oh, yeah, that would have been that would have been interesting. However, we kind of have to work with the book we've got, which is not bad, and Dalton likes it. I like it. I like it. I think it's a great adaptation. I would say I would say it's certainly it's the sort of adaptation that really makes you want to see the original desperately badly. Yes. Yeah. And I think BBC Books kind of missed a trick when they released the animation of Power of the Daleks and they didn't re-release Power mm. because they could have. Yeah. They easily could have. In fact, John Peel is kind of waiting in New England for somebody to contact him to say, hey, we want to republish this, or we want to do an audiobook of it. This book would be marvelous on audio. Mm. Oh, it'd be awesome. So, what else? Well, let's talk about Victoria, since she is the new companion, whether, whether you like it or not, so to quote Colin Baker. my thing about Victoria. Um, and I feel bad because, like, the few times I met Debbie Watling... I really adored her. She's a lovely woman. But I'm not sold on Victoria as a character, particularly in this one, because she is literally... You know, my, my note here is, what is this Super Mario Brothers bullshit? I was just... <laughs> she is Princess Peach. You know, she, she is our princess. Especially when he, when they succeed in rescuing her, and then Cheryl snatches yeah. her again, and then they've lost her again. She is another the castle. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh-huh. this is where I would have loved to have had Allison or Jenny here, because... Yes. The fact that Jamie's motivation to save her isn't because she's a human being who's worthy of saving. No. 
but because she's pretty she's and she's attractive. beautiful. If she were butt ugly, <laughs> this whole thing would have fallen apart. And that could have been interesting because, like, what if the, the Daleks don't have a sense of what human beauty is necessarily? And what if they had like picked up some fugly girl or something like that? And then, but 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 there is a sense of like, you know, I think, and this is where you know Peel has been accused of misogyny in his works, and I think this, yeah, and he could have dealt with that, but he actually reinforces. All the times Jamie's looking at that damn portrait really and does. Ruth getting all, you know, jealous of it and everything. She really is not in the of life. With his reactions to the portrait and some of even the doctor's like inner thoughts about well, what is the reasoning behind all this? What's going on? I originally thought that the human factor was going to have to do something with sex. Mm -hmm. It was going to be some mating ritual oh. or some like forced mating or something to do with that. Except it's 67 what? and it's BBC One. <laughs> I don't know. That's just where my mind went. I was yeah. like, they have this like this this manly man, Scotland, you know, Scottish they guy, and have. there was this this dame in distress, and it's like. Yeah. What, what is what is their actual plan? Had it been a I different show, they could have. Yeah. In fact, um, I mentioned this before, Year of the Sex Olympics by Nigel Neal. I think that was 68. Mm -hmm. So we're not too far away from yeah. that. And that show really is just well, well, dripping on what the, you can show in sexual like, terms. The, the focus they kept putting on how Jamie just, like, he wanted to save her because he was attracted to her. She's beautiful. She's this woman. She, the, the hair, the eyes, and the... It felt like that's where it was going. Yeah. It was like, how can we get this guy to come after this yeah. person? He's attracted to her. Mm -hmm. And it's and, and I think that bothers me because it's, it's not because helping a person in need is the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. It's because she's pretty. And and I get it. I mean, and it, now that goes back to the fairy tale thing. Yeah, it does. That, that would be very much a fairy tale archetype. And, like, I, I, I had to look up because the whole, like, quest with all these ridiculous, like, axes and daggers and yes. spikes and the, the trials i thought maybe there was a scooby-doo thing but scooby-doo didn't start until 69 yeah. so but it, it does feel like a scooby-doo episode it does oh my god you know, and let's see who's really behind this you know and, and it's and it's professor Hyde White, the one yes. who's the the kindly financier who's really doing all this. he's the only one that could have paid for all those changes to the house Unless the Daleks who are being their own subcontractors, which strikes me as even more ridiculous. Yeah, that would be ridiculous. I mean, the juxtaposition of the Daleks in the house, apparently, I mean, it works well. Yeah. That would be lovely to see. A I would Dalek like to in the see Victorian it. Yeah. And that's when, it, it does, that's where in the book, that whole middle section is padded. It might have been fun television, but it's not working in the book for me. It felt, felt very Harry Potter. With the secret passages. Yeah. I was just imagining Hogwarts. I was just seeing these like secret corridors crew. with stained glass windows <laughs> and moonlight and just like very cloak and dagger. Yeah, and the, I, I enjoyed it, but it's cool like about, this is it, not Doctor Who. But, but, but. but I mean, there's something really cool about that. I mean, yeah. think, think if the Daleks appeared in Hogwarts. Yes. That would actually be a real. There's some good. I'm just probably done in some crossover fanfic oh. somewhere. But that would be. I mean, I think that's what. And that's what I, I think. This whole story is almost meant to be allegorical, mm -hmm. you know, on, on on several levels. Well, oh yes, they keep. There was. Um, <clears throat> let me see if I can. They kept. They kept referring to like what it is to be human. Yes. There were there were, in, in number of passages where it was like, mm -hmm. and humans do this, and dogs do this, and humans do this, and dogs do this, and humans do this, and it's like there there were so many instances where it was kind of like backhanding you across the face but it still was <laughs> kind of talking about like humanity and what makes humanity 
the way it is. You've watched you you watched the current incarnation of the series, right? Yes, I I have I'm through most of the, the okay. last season. Did you make any connections to any stories from the, this? Is a leading question. Uh, it's, it sounds like one. <laughs> um, you know which, do you know which story I'm talking I about? I do. Daleks in Manhattan, Evolution of the Daleks. Yeah, I was about to say. Uh, yeah, keep talking. Because you've got like it, there's this sort of capitalism riff going on mm-hmm. with like the Empire State Building, and then Theodore Maxwell. I mean, he's after gold, and he's it's mentioned several times that he's a financier. Yeah. And that's where I was getting this sort of allegorical thing. Is this like capitalism corrupting scientific inquiry? Which yeah. is what happens with Waterfield and Maxtable is the genuine scientific inquiry has been corrupted. And then you've got humans acting like Daleks and Daleks acting like humans, which happened yeah. very much when they had like the Dalek sec hybrid and then an evolution of the Daleks, the second part of that where the Dalek becomes too humanized and they, they end up turning against each other. And I haven't watched that <laughs> in, a, in a bit. Um a few years. But. Well, if, you, if you're trying to figure out which Doctor Who should I rewatch, watch it and see. Yeah. Like that's a fun no, one I to am. watch after this because yeah. there are some. Re- I think I think it was or direct steals. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was a. Is it a ripoff or an homage? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a ripoff. <laughs> um, I'll be charitable and say it's an homage, mm-hmm. but um, I did like the cigar joke. There's a bit like when they're on Scarrow and Maxtable, things like. A Dalek wouldn't appreciate a fine Havana cigar or something like that. Yeah. It it gets it gets interesting at times. I'm, there are plenty of little things like that that definitely would have not been in the original. I think it's a. Uh, is it Kennedy who thinks that the robot that the Dalek looks like it came out of a Quatermass cereal and it's like something like there were never robots in Quatermass. What on earth are you talking about? No, 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 no. But that was just a problem for me. Do you think Kennedy was named deliberately to be topical? Because it's not too... I don't know. Well, it's easier to make that whole Ken short for Kennedy than it's easier to do that sort of thing. Um, So it's part of the faux Agatha Christie thing that those first two episodes have going that is completely lost by the end of, uh, by halfway through the second episode. Talking about, um, like, what makes humans human and dogs dog, um, there's... uh, once the doctor kind of discovers why um, Waterfield is doing what he does, it says the doctor stared at him. So that was the reason the man was under so much stress. It was fear of what had happened to someone he loved and uncertainty as to her fate. He found himself beginning to thaw towards the man. He was clearly not the scoundrel that the doctor had been picturing. He was, he was instead a desperate man, which might be worse than a scoundrel for a desperate man might do the unpredictable yes. while a that's rogue great. is always a rogue. I put that in my notes. That's a great that, line. That immediately, I was like, that is it. You know, you have these two characters, you don't know how to trust them, how to take them, but one, their their intentions and their reasonings for what they're doing are completely yes. different. And interestingly enough, it foreshadows Maxtable, who is definitely the rogue in the situation. Yes, yes. totally. Yeah, who, who doesn't even love his own See, daughter. And I'm just... I'm, yeah, I think you you made the Trump reference in your notes, but like he, he really is, and that's where I think like there could be. I'm, I'm getting a sense of, and Whitaker is so interesting with his, you know, it's hard to nail down his politics and everything, but mm-hmm. this idea of questioning, you know, yes. and 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 creating disorder based on, and you look at like Vietnam's happening at the same time and the counterculture there, why? and you know why, why, who dares ask why? I mean, that's. 
there's you know yeah mm -hmm. at the at the end one of the dogs says we will not obey without question we don't have a problem with obeying, but we're going to question why we're doing it. Yeah, the and human we, Daleks do. Yes, yeah. and if we agree, then we'll yeah. do it. Interesting you should bring up the counterculture in David Whitaker. There's a weird tie there. There's a semi-horror movie that he wrote in 1970 or 71 about bikers who come back from the dead. And I cannot for the life of me remember the name of it. But it's got his fingerprints all over it. It would have been written towards the, around the same time that he did Ambassadors of Death. And it's he was certainly aware of the counterculture, so probably he's threading some of those same themes through. Well, Ambassadors of Death certainly... And what's interesting, if you, you one of your notes about Maxtable was um, about how he wants to use his wealth to influence governments and world leaders and that. And what's David Whitaker's next story? You stumped me. Enemy um, of the world. Oh, of course it is. And, and that's exactly what happens that's exactly with Salamander. Happens. Oh, good lord. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. And that's, that's an Ian Martyr book, so you'll have to be on board for that one. Yeah. Not a very great Ian Martyr book, but still, it's Ian Martyr. It's still Ian Martyr. Yeah, so. so good stuff. Yeah. Um, exactly. That is interesting, because it certainly unpacks that whole theme. But I think what I said in my notes, too, is uh, is it possible that Maxwell is. What Trump to the Daleks, Putin? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he certainly seems like he's being overly subservient to them just to get what he wants, and then gets screwed by them as we, and then yes. denies the evidence. Yeah, well, yes, you know, in order to save face, and like at one point, Victoria's like, "Well, you, you, you just can't reach him." Yeah, and he's 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 just so gone far. I mean, and I think the bit I liked I liked what he does with Ruth. I. Those three, Molly, Ruth, and Terrell, mm -hmm. they, you feel like maybe they're a remnant of a previous draft? They must be. They must but be. But the thing is, there, there's, there's some good stuff in me. I either want to, I feel like it either needs to be removed or developed. Yes. And because I think there's some, there's some interesting stuff there. I mean, I think, um, I actually feel it a lot of compassion for Ruth where, you know, and again, if we're looking at an allegorical thing, you know, the sort of person who, well, let's just be nice. Let's keep things civil. Right. But realizing that the person that I, my duty says I should be loyal to is an absolute shit. <laughs> and you can see like, and I think any one of us who's ever been disappointed in a partner or a parent or has felt betrayed, I mean, I think her having to like have this realization of my father's an ass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's, I, I liked that moment. Mm -hmm. And then you, you. Maybe if there had been more, you know, maybe more scenes with her and Victoria together. Yes, yeah. I was going to say, they and that contrast to like, each other. Because then, you know, they have different father-daughter relationships. Yes. And, um, you know, so I, I think, and, and I do like that she does have, at some point she's like making excuses for the father. And then at some point she does stop making excuses yes. for him. And I'd like to have had more of that moment. True. Well, and and thinking about it now, I had, I had highlighted, there's a, there's a, the, her, her, Ruth's first interaction with Jamie, um, he's asking her about the painting, and her face is turned, and she makes like a sour face towards the painting. Yeah. And they don't ever really come back to that. It's like, well, why does she like... They do. She suspected that Terrell was interested in Victoria.
Okay, I took it as the mom, and I was like, what? What did the mom do to you that made you... No, it's that feeling that the Waterfields have taken over the house, Victoria's come in... And and Terrell's been acting weird, so she's like, she's trying to make... telling herself stories based on her fiancé, because there's... there's, And again, I would have liked... Because, like, Peel does this um, in other words. I would have, like... and Dog's Master Plan, he kind of returned to characters that had kind of been forgotten about. He talks about, like, what happened to Carlton. I would have loved, like, maybe a little epilogue, like, what happened to Molly? Did, did Molly, Ruth, and Terrell live happily ever after? I mean, right. is there a happy ending in this somewhere? Because I'd like to think that they did. Yeah. Did they just they, all shack up in a polyamorous once, relationship in the London mansion? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course once, they did. Once, once the scales are lifted, like, they seem like decent people. Yeah. yeah. And everyone else in the story isn't that decent. No. Um, well, apart from like Victoria and Camel and everything, but like you know the the, the bit players and the opening are all kind of sketchy. Even Perry's sketchy and yeah, and yeah. his own. Yeah, he was talking about stealing business from Waterfield. Yeah, and, like oh, let me just do what he wants for now, so I can steal his business <laughs> later. And Waterfield thinks that that's going to make him a good antiquarian. <laughs> yeah, and and then there's part of me that says that like Molly Dawson could have been the next companion. She really could have. Oh, I kept really thinking that have. that's the way it was going to go. She could okay. I, I honestly, that's one of those left turns. I was expecting her to be where it was. I had suspicions that it was going to be Victoria, but I also felt that, because in one of the last episodes we talked about, there are new companions coming up. Be ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and I initially thought, Molly could be one. Well, and... If you see the and she's um, in the one in the surviving episode and she's she and Fraser Hines have great chemistry. They They're really do. She's and she's yes. She's kind of got this like raspy voice and she's and you get a sense that she's a little bit naughty. Yes. Like like she says, I do know how it is with soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is pretty brilliant. <laughs> but I'm I'm interested to see how where Victoria goes. Which is interesting. She's not my favorite. I'm not expecting a lot from her, but I am open to, ex- you know, well, whatever. I'm three-fourths of the way through the audiobook of uh, Tomb of the Cybermen right now, and I'm remembering now why I always like that book so much. And it's because Jerry Davis is going to give us a lot of Victoria, a lot more than what's on screen. So you are going to come to like her very much, but then, well, you get, the, you get the onset of companions settling in, and then suddenly there's not much for them to do. Or there's, oh, that's her last story. That's an interesting one. That is a very interesting one, because it's one of the few times, especially in the 60s, that they give a companion quite such a, a send-off, full-rounded maybe. send-off, yeah. I mean, Jamie and Zoe will get that too, but for different reasons. Right. Very different reasons yeah let's not get ahead of ourselves let's talk about jamie yes let's do because my god this is a jamie book it is this is jamie's story what'd you think of it dalton i enjoyed it um since i was not i i i was not on the story and i still haven't gone back and read the the story where he was the highlanders where he was introduced absolutely Um, nothing i feel that way i'm like "Eh, i'll go back and read it at some point um the few stories I've read with Jamie, I'm like, I don't, I don't have any sense of who he is. The little bits that I'm getting, it's not enough. So I feel like I'm unsatiated. I'm just like, I give me more, give me something to grab onto to 
know who this guy is and what his deal is. And this does it, and this shows it more than anything we've read. Um, Stand-up guy. I, 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 love, <laughs> I love that he gets into it with the doctor in this. Yeah. And it's a really powerful moment. My, my frustration, and certainly like in subsequent stories, and I'm sure this is also mirrored by Fraser and Patrick Troughton becoming such good friends, yes. but Jamie is... Like after this, he and the doctor are just tight. They they they've got each other's backs, and that often happens when like in a friendship, if you've had, you, you get all the shit out there <laughs> that you just like. Okay, this has been pissing me off, and you you have it out, and then you realize each other's truth or perceptions, mm-hmm. and then. But what's what we never see is an actual reconciliation. That's true. It's an implied reconciliation. I think once the once Jamie realizes that. What the doctor's plan was it's kind of it, it kind of foreshadows ace and the doctor mm-hmm. and you know there's an implied forgiveness and i think victoria's also there now we have someone to take care of da, 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 da. but i would have liked some dialogue or some form of acknowledgement either the doctor apologizing or jamie coming to turn and, you know does ace I, ever get that though because after she gets on going ahead a little bit, but after she gets really pissed off at him with the events of Ghostlight... He you get ne- Fenric. Yeah, but he never he, really apologizes to her. But you've got that. that coda in Fenric where she swims and it kind of oh, is like a symbolic a purging symbolic of everything. Yeah, that's they true. leave arm in arm and, so, and they're laughing and then he yeah. takes her home the very next door. So you get a sense that they're alright. Which sounds cheesy as hell if we're talking about it, but it's really a lovely moment. I mean, I was just gonna say, I think... I think uh, dealing with the Daleks and coming out the other side of it is enough of a cleansing fire. Probably. You're... Just like, ugh, we made it. We, mm-hmm. Whatever happened, happened, and we're good. Yeah. You don't even need to address it. And it could have happened off screen. Yeah. I could, Of all the doctors, I could see the Troughton doctor being the most likely to apologize to a companion for, you know keeping them in the dark maybe well, the davison doctor especially would do especially because peel takes such great efforts to show that the doctor does not want to have yeah. to do this. he's really conflicted yes, about he does. it he, he doesn't want to do it and and he even makes a point to go against what they wanted to do just so he can have jamie at least know the daleks are here this is dangerous i can't give it all away but there's some serious shit going down and I could see you wanting that in the coda because certainly in that coda, John Peel is giving us enough rope to hang ourselves with with the idea that this isn't the final end. Even though one of the listeners asked me to ask him, why are you so insistent that Evil of the Daleks is the final end? And it's like, at the time it was. It was intended to be. Yeah. What's, what is there to say that it wasn't? Did you ever read the comic... Um, there was like an Eighth Doctor comic from Doctor Who magazine with, um, it was called like Children of the Revolution, and it had like the surviving humanized Daleks, and they had escaped from Scarrow, and like the Doctor meets in the submarine or something, but like basically they are good Daleks, they're like humanized Daleks, yeah. and then, and eventually I think what happens is like the original Scarrowsian Daleks like have hunted and tracked them down, but like, but it's, it was a... I'm not really into the comics, but that was a really, really good strip. Was well, the was, the end is pretty ambiguous, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this last par- one of the last paragraphs says, "If they were, um, uh, there were few races so evil that their passing cannot be mourned by by some. In the case of the Daleks, however, there were there would be none to shed a tear. Yeah. 
if they were all if they were all dead. The Emperor had ordered all the Daleks back to Skaro. Had every Dalek been able to return, or were there still some in transit, perhaps on other worlds or even in other times? Mm-hmm. Only time itself would tell. So that itself is saying, we don't know. Yeah, precisely. We don't know. There, and I even reading that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, there could be other Daleks. Deliberately ambiguous. There's no finality to but that. How many times, I mean, even if we just look at the new series... How many times have the dogs totally been wiped out only for them not to have been? Every time they've been wiped out. And then like <laughs> two seasons later, they have another dogs episode where they're invading I London. had an emergency temporal escape yeah. or something. And it's kind of weird it's... that the Doctor is so bad at actually killing people. He tries to wipe out the Time Lords, he doesn't. He tries to wipe out the Daleks, he doesn't. Well, that's what happens with time, though. Yeah. And alternate timelines. And with time there... travel, there's so many possibilities. There was a cut scene, not in this story, but... And the next TV story that would have had Daleks in it, there was a cut, there was an original script, but where the doctor asked the Daleks what had happened to the humanized Daleks in Scaro. Really? Yeah, and Day of the, the Daleks, Daleks there, was, there was somewhere a bit in like, and they say that they've been dealt with, or, you know, just sort of obliquely, but it's kind of was implied at the time. And I don't know if that was removed because like episode four really overran. Um, Probably. But. Whether or whether the production team said, oh, evil was meant to be the final end, so timey-wimey. But there was somewhere in the script that acknowledged the events of evil of the Daleks. I'm betting it was the uh, former. Because that's one of those stories that has almost too much plot and too few Daleks. Right. Because <laughs> they only had the three. Actually, they only had two, didn't they? They had three. They had three. The gold and the two of the Daleks. That's right. That's right. That's what it was. Ah, uh, so what else? What are some things that we like a lot and things that we think are kind of not so great about this one i guess like i'm i'm it's really i said you know on facebook i have strong opinions about this one but it's i i have a really hard time pinpointing this with john peel like you know you mentioned in your notes and and you talked about how dense his writing is you know oh like drinking a cup of wine can warrant a whole paragraph yeah and is it because he now all of a sudden he has the opposite problems of trying to cram too much story into too few pages? Does he have too many pages to fill up? And lighting a cigarette takes half a page. And I'm not sure that makes the story better. No. No. Well, and it's not throughout. There are certain scenes where there there's more description, there's more attention to the detail of what is going on, and in ways I feel like it characterizes the person. Describing Maxible. Lighting the cigarette or lighting the cigar, that like mm-hmm. that embodies him. Talking about Molly bringing in that elixir, that wine, whatever it was, right. that helps to like show her character. And if we're thinking that she may have possibly been like a, a future companion, that that's already starting like a characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's inconsistent. It's not throughout. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I disliked it, but again, it's one of those. I, I go back to if I had a student turning and writing that was that descriptive, would I, what, what would my instructions be? I know what mine would be. Cut, 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 cut. Edit. Yes. Edit, edit, edit. Kill your darlings. Because that half paragraph of Kennedy lighting the cigarette, it's like, really? Do Especially, we have to go into this much detail about lighting a fucking cigarette? Really wanted you to know. Wasn't that, wasn't that to set up like the whole thing with the matchbook that was being left discarded? So it was not part I, I of the show. I believe so. I don't think so. I mean, I'd have to look again. It was around the... Yeah, it was around around that time, but honestly, it was just in loving detail. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily make the story any better. That being said, 
there are beautiful descriptive sequences when we get to Scaro, especially yes. of the Emperor Dalek, and a sequence that I'm really f- fond of. When, is it Kennedy that gets killed by the Dalek? Yeah. Uh, when he first sees it, and he doesn't know what it is. Yes. So Peel can't just say, there's a Dalek in the corner. He has to describe it the way Kennedy is seeing it for the first time, and it is a brilliant sequence. And you're like, if you were an artist and you needed someone to describe what a Dalek looked like to you without seeing it on the cover of this book, you could draw one from that description. It's just gorgeous. And the Emperor Dalek, that design of the Emperor Dalek, I've always thought is the most beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's just stunning. On the cover? Yeah. Oh my god, it's stunning. Not nearly as static as it looks either, because is, if I remember correctly, the, the eye, top piece moved, yeah, the eye the moved, eye and moves. it has lights around its um, neck. And it's about twice as, it's about three times as high as the other Daleks. Yeah. It's tall. Yeah, no, I, I imagine the scale to be immense. It's... Look at the size of that thing! So, you are the Doctor! We meet at last. I wondered if we ever would. The experiment is over. Yes. I have implanted the human factor in the three Daleks that you gave me. And I say run, run. Speak louder. Oh, Promise me, Jimmy. I was merely telling my friend that the day of the Daleks is coming to an end. Explain. It's very simple. Somewhere in the Dalek race, there are three Daleks with the human factor. Gradually, they will come to question. They will persuade other Daleks to question. You will have a rebellion on your planet. No! I say yes! I've beaten you, and I don't care what you do to me now. Silence! The human factor showed us what the Dalek factor was. What? Not as tall as Peel makes it out to be. No. Because Peel, well, what does he say? It's like 30 feet. He makes it seem like it, yes, it's ginormous and as big as a. Yeah. The one in the new series is. The first time we see the Emperor Dalek in Chris Eccleston's uh, run. But it was because of this story that made that moment very exciting. Yes. For, for the classic series fans. Because you're oh, like. Because apart from like the big finish stuff in the comics. Evil of the Daleks was the only time we had seen the Emperor Dalek. Right. Until um, Chris Eccleston's last story. Well, we saw the Emperor Light, the Davros version. Oh, right. Which was kind of modeled after the uh, TV comic. Deodorant. (laughs) It does. He looks like he does look like a roll-on deodorant. It's ridiculous. Yes. It kind of sounds like one as well. He's all squeaky. In fact, chapter 29, do you have your copy? I wanted to look up real quick because the number he gives for how big it is is just ginormous. It is not that big. Chapter 29, he describes the emperor as being huge. Huge. I know. That's his internet measurement. (laughs) (laughs) And then he gives Jamie the, the line, look at the size of that thing. That's like, oh god, that again. That's going to be an infamous... The first two lines of The Two Doctors from 1986 are, Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yes, Jamie, that is a big one. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yes, Jamie, that is a big one. And, of course, you can imagine... (laughs) 
I love it. Oh yeah, it's lovely. So he, and then Fraser tries to work in, in a lot of is in the big finish stuff as much as he can. Yes, exactly. Forty feet tall. It is not forty feet tall. It is not fucking forty feet tall. Yeah. It maybe is twelve feet tall. Maybe. It's still a pretty fucking big. It's dog. it's huge. It's still big, but forty. Yeah. Whenever, forty versus twelve. Going yeah. by Peel's description, I was imagining this sky like not a skyscraper, but like apartment size. Giant Emperor Dalek that and it is big. obviously can't move, but it's just like yeah, twelve feet though. That that's well, a little less. Uh, what I like to is but still like it's still big. huge. Yeah. Absolutely. What I like too is if you look at the other, you know, Peel added all this Emperor Dalek stuff to the Chase Dalek's Master Plan and Power of the Daleks. So if you read all of his books in succession, there's actual real nice link between mm-hmm. them. So this is the culmination of it. Yeah. Yeah, which is, it's nice to have that sort of internal continuity in these early stories because they themselves do not have it. Um, we get the Tranium Core mentioned again. We've got that whole thing. Uh-huh. And as you said, Emperor Dalek has been in all of them. That first scene with the Emperor Dalek showing that there's some sort of time war going on and that's... Tan- that's tan- oddly prescient. Yes, yeah, it's tantalizingly... Yeah, it makes you think. Yeah. Um, that just thinking about static electricity being brought up and yes. used as like a plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reading this, I kind of got mad. I was like, if they would have only not put Daleks in the name of this story, yeah. that first like third of the book would have been so much more confusing suspenseful. and suspenseful and like, where's this going? Yes. If this had been done as a Hartnell story when they still did individual titles for episodes, yes. We'd probably have that put off for a while. Of course, the Radio Times would have still blown the gaff and said, Oh, the Daleks are coming back. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But that's like, that first third of the book, <coughs> Gotham, it was, I was reading it, and I'm like, if I didn't know this was a Dalek story, I wouldn't have known whether this was But that, that happens a lot in 70s and 80s Doctor Who with returning monsters, yes. where, like, the title will say, Revenge of the Cybermen, and then, like, yeah. you know, the cliffhanger will be, it's a Cyberman. And you're yes. like, well. I yes. wonder. And, you know, dramatic mm. irony is supposed to be working there. But There's a yeah. notable exception in 1981 in which there's a return that is not signaled by the yes. title. And that's one of the few times that and people fandom went, was ever and, surprised. And that was something that John Nathan Turner was deliberately downplayed that. Yes. Bless his soul. And, and. Yes. And it worked because, and I'm, that's why I'm not saying it to you because, I I'm trying to remember. I don't even think the uh, cover of that book. No. Gives yeah. it away. So I just not the original I was, one. I was not reading this cover. and I was like, if I wouldn't have known it was a Dalek story, a, a good third of this book would have just been so much more suspenseful Actually. and had me like, really on the edge of my seat. Right. But I was like, okay, I see where this is going. Several other stories from that era with a recurring villain that was not signposted. That's true. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm also thinking of... Um, oh, um, yes. Frontier yes. in Space. That's a that's a good moment. Frontier in Space is another one where you're like, whoa. Oh. Yeah. Especially since we already have that kind of established story with Maxible and Waterfield um, having discovered yes. time, time or space travel. And, and it's like, yes, this is amazing. It, this could very well have not been a Dalek story. It may have started out not as a Dalek story. I don't know. But um, I was reading it and I was just like, 
you, you know, ruined the surprise! I think that's why you have that first Dalek death taking place at the end of episode one. Because they had to get the Daleks in there yeah. sometime before the end of episode one to justify them yeah. being in the title. Because it had already been advertised in the Radio Times, Evil of the Daleks. Otherwise, we would not have it. Yeah. You would not have seen what killed him. And that would have added to the suspense. Yes. And, and it, was, it was there. Yeah. As, I was... yeah. As it is, when you get to the end of episode two and the Doctor finds out who it is... Troughton's shock is, yeah, the, the Doctor's shock is palpable on uh, Troughton's face. It's yeah. a perfect moment. There's a bit where they, he, he, you almost sense him guessing when he says static. Yeah. Yes, and, and, that, and that's in here too. Mm-hmm. You, you get the feeling of the Doctor figuring it but out. But we all know it because it's on the title, know. it's yes. on the cover. Which is yeah. of our old friend Dramatic Irony. Problem is, it's not Dramatic Irony if you've got the fucking name of the villains on the cover. Yeah. And you have three was, depictions of them. It was, it, yeah, it was great, except for everything was, I knew where it was yeah. going. Um, which, didn't, it didn't totally ruin it, but it's still just, like, dead in the impact. I'm wondering if at some point, for you and Allison, we shouldn't try to figure out some way of getting you a copy of the book that doesn't have the title at some point, and surprising you with something. I don't know how that would work, though, and I don't know what story would work best for that. Besides, no one would ever read a Target book that way. You'd always know what you were reading. So, it might be a good mind experiment. I mean, you could make a Word file that, if they can get them, because this will coming up relatively soon. Yes. A version of the Seeds of Death without the cover. Oh. 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 Yes. Yes, let's assume. And some of the others <laughs> of that of that genre. Yes, let's assume that the Target books that you got copies of were remaindered at the news agents, so they had to have their covers ripped off, mm-hmm. which I can't believe they still do. Um, <laughs> and that's how you got it, and you didn't know who the villains were until oh, yeah. I like the way you think. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on to that. So nobody but nobody tell either Allison or Dalton or Jenny Ingersoll what the villain is in an upcoming book, please. Thank you. We'll we'll try it. We'll see what happens. And it, and and it didn't it's really ruin this one. Eight. Stuff. Oh, that's true. But it it was just like it had a lot going for it. Well, majority. I think I think what it is is like. You know, in some of these stories where they, they are signposting who the monster or the returning villain is in, in the title, it's, I, think, I think this is exacerbated because he does try to make it so mysterious. Yeah. The doctor exactly. doesn't know. Um, there's all these references. And again, that goes back to Daleks in Manhattan. Oh, God. Because I think if they, I think, because like there's all this dialogue in there, like, you know, our masters deserve this. Who are our masters? You're just seeing pig slaves in this. Yes. And you can imagine if they didn't have the title Daleks in Manhattan, they didn't, the Radio Times is everything, and when that elevator opens and it's all Art Deco and that Dalek is right there, that would have been like, oh! Yes! Because, like, that would have been, I think that's, a, so that's another great example of, I think, They even managed to ruin the cliffhanger of that one. If you haven't watched it now, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's um, true, but... Or even, like, the next time on Bad Wolf. Yeah. Like, oh, that would have... You know, because you just think it's going to be this dark comedy about game shows. In and fact, then, boom. The last time I... 
This this reveals something of my personal life to you, dear listeners. But I um back when Eccleston started, I used to show my dates the f- entire first season. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a fun time. But when I would get to that one, I wouldn't show them the next time. Right. And they were invariably surprised. Yeah. Because it's brilliant. It does not give away anything until no, that doesn't. moment. No, it doesn't. And it's better done that way, whereas... Which I think would have been the intent, but I think BBC wanted to get viewer... Build, I don't know. Oh, of course they did, because Jesus... Like, we didn't know the fucking things were coming back. Jesus. Um, anything else we need to say about this one? Because I, I have nitpicks, but they're they're like minor nitpicks. Uh, one being that the human Daleks are so much better on the page than they are in the... Audio. No, I disagree. I hate those voices. I love them. Oh, God, I, I haven't heard the audio, but they did remind me of the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Yes. Your rats with wings. That's kind of what they are. Why? That's exactly what they are. They're like, yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Dizzy. 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 Dizzy Doctor. Vegetable, do you hear that? They've got a sense of humor. I'm glad you are so easily amused. <laughs> Dizzy Doctor. Dizzy Doctor. Oh. <laughs> oh, they're adorable. I haven't heard of the audio. So I have to admit, my favorite behind-the-scenes story of the making of this is uh, Roy Skelton saying that he changed one of the lines to "What's it all about, Alpha?" (laughs) I was like, "Oh my god!" Well, there was also a story where like um, Fraser was hiding in one of them just to kind of see what it was like, and like two of the co-stars. Like, came in and had a big bitch session about how awful the show was and how awful the director was, and da 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 And he overheard them all, so that's... He's that's... never said who who was, did he? No, but, I mean, it would, it would have had to have been one of the Victorians. Yeah, probably. You know, that's a that, shame. It's probably the, the guy that played Maxtable. <laughs> he, was, he was a big star. Like, he's one of those ones that were like, we haven't heard of him at all, but, like... Right. You know, when you look at, like, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, they say, oh, he was a big catch for them, too. Yeah, whereas yeah. the real the real class act in the televised story is the actor who plays Edward Waterfield. Mm-hmm. Because he came back and was the only, literally the only good thing about Horns of Nymar in 1979, which was I just disagree. recently, oh, God, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one because the Twitch chat agreed with me that they said that Sazam was the best thing about that story. He's great in it. I just think that well, it's Romana not the only on, great thing. Romana on her own is actually quite good, too. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're like four years away from that story, <laughs> so let's not even talk about it just yet. Anything else we have to say about it? Um, I just... I'm, I'll look through my notes. I just have this one... Or my highlights, I guess I should say. Sure. I just have this one currently. Um... It's when Waterfield is, it, we're still in 1966 in the, the antique shop. Um, Waterfield longed to return to his simple belief in the power of prayer. If only he could believe again, as he had once before, in a loving God. But his oh. faith had been shattered by the creatures he was forced to deal with. They had burned out his heart and soul, and he could no longer pretend that either still existed. That, to me, 
like epitomizes the evil of the Daleks. Just the fact that they could strip all hope in this this man that like even prayer, even just getting his thoughts out into the 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 universe, like yes. even that would not bring him comfort. Agreed. That is like so good. It really is. And that probably one of the things I wondered is what sort of indignities did the Daleks put Victoria through? That would have been enough for her to know that her father is being torn apart body and soul by that. So that makes me think of one of my favorite lines from it is when the Dalek is like, do not feed the flying pest outside. (laughs) And then you have like this Dalek, it's like and again on TV, because it's in the surviving episode, but like you will eat. It's like this overbearing grandmother pushing food. Eat, eat, eat. It's like, I thought when I first saw that, I thought it was the most unintentionally comic yes. thing ever. You have lost two pounds of body weight. <laughs> you must maintain, eat the food. Do not be the flying pest. And it's like, that was another reason why I thought it was going to a sex thing because maintaining body weight, like she would have need to, if you're You still going, need to look good, girl, well, because, you know, you're, you know, look no. at that portrait. You need to look like your mom. But if you're going to impregnate you with this possible human Dalek hybrid, then you need to be healthy. Well, like That's English my brain hybrid. was going with that. Why did she need to be, like, why were they weighing her? Well, like, so you were thinking it was going to be, like, some sort of, like, Rosemary's baby with Daleks or something? Oh, dear yes. God. He has his father's eyes. Wouldn't that be awesome? Which would have been great! <laughs> if this wasn't bad, but like... That's actually a really good idea for a story. <laughs> there you go. That's where my brain was going initially, was this... Yes, it was going to be some impregnation, or Jamie was going to save her and fuck her, or... <laughs> they don't fuck in the TARDIS. The, the new <laughs> series could get away with something yeah, like that, but, possibly, but... But... Yeah. The, we know that sex has happened on the TARDIS, yes, and when it does, it creates. That's where my brain time went, though. For it some went reason. to some kind of like yeah. literal biological human Dalek hybrid or something like that. <laughs> um, and so there were all these signs that were leaving me there. Uh-huh. They're weighing her, they're testing Jamie's strength, they're wanting to see like his physical prowess, and. Yeah. Well, that's a thought. Mm hmm. Ooh. It was all there. No, I see and it. I was I'm, not I'm, under any influence. My, my gears were just kind of going because I think, and that's, <laughs> and actually, like what you said, that that's why I love this podcast so much because you know we experts we would not have ever had that, and no. I think this possibility of like a Rosemary's Baby <laughs> with Daleks is just so <laughs> awesome. Like that's like the abortion ultimate... of the Daleks. You know, right. like, you know? Daleks. that would have been exactly. like the ultimate diabolical scheme. Like make this human have a Dalek human hybrid baby and then take it mm. from her, and then like I don't know, I don't know where it was going in my head, but I was like, I was feeling it at the time. Um, no, I, I, yeah. Because yeah. they've danced around issues of like Dalek reproduction, like in Revelation of the Daleks yes. and in Bad Wolf, Parting of the Ways, and this idea that there has been some of that human body violation of people being turned into Daleks. Yes, that that has been done, and so like, and I think I think probably it's it's me having having watched a lot of the new series and seen a lot of the Cybermen mm-hmm. stories where humans literally are, you know, yeah. turned 
And so I'm I'm just and I, I formulating like all of these these things in my head. There's, I feel like there's like a big Finnish story or something where a woman volunteers to become a Dalek and she goes through the mutation. It might have been Time of the Daleks, which was inspired by Evil the Daleks because they were trying to figure out what could, would be the audio equivalent of the juxtaposition. You've got all these Daleks um, citing Shakespeare's lines. Okay? Oh, God, yeah. And, and, it, and, and it is unnerving and it works really, really well. Except, unfortunately, with televised Doctor Who, it's a bit early for that. Right. And for Doctor Who on the page, it's not quite too early for that but it's the wrong range for it right because it's not the new adventures it's still target you could totally have seen if they if, if new adventures had gotten the rights to daleks they would have done shit like right that probably. and this is the totally the great thing of me not knowing all of this stuff mm-hmm. and totally coming into it with a fresh perspective just being like well what's gonna happen yeah and my mind takes new places that i'm kind of envious of that actually through. i'm really kind of envious because yeah. like i feel like all I'm right. vicariously like a kid in the 80s again experiencing all this shit for the first time. I love it. Well, and like you were talking about earlier with like... Um, What's the doctor equivalent of a soccer mom or something? Like, you know, <laughs> you, come on, Dalton, you'll like this one. I, I, I've enjoyed the most of the ones we've done, but like you were talking about with Dogs Take Manhattan, like, I feel like I've only watched that maybe once. So a lot of my knowledge and what I'm drawing from is kind of... Uh, glossed over whereas the two of you have much more in yeah, depth watched, watched it them. and I we have love, no lives I, you know no, <laughs> I, love, I love that because I have that that total focus for well, lots of other things I was I mean uh, the one that would be if we're talking about like modern and new I mean I was I mean ser- series three of the new series is probably it's tied for my favorite series of the new series yeah um, and I think one of the reasons I like it so much is there is a running theme in there about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And I think thematically it's very strong because this is the one where you've got the doctor becoming human. You've got all these riffs on human nature. You've got the macro story. Oh, you've yeah. got this Dalek two-parter. You've got the, um, yeah. end of the human race with the master three party there. So this whole question of you know, what it means to be human. Um, Lazarus experiment and rewriting his DNA. Oh, is that's he still right. human? There's, there's a really, even in the, the Jadun episode, they're like human, non-human, da, da, and people pose it. And there's, it's really clever. It's okay. so subtle, but it's mm-hmm. there. Blink is the only one that really doesn't deal it's with it. It's so subtle, I didn't notice it. But it's, okay. it's definitely there. And so like, you know, I'd say if you're, if you're looking, especially after coming out for this one, if there's like, oh, there, what new series one should we watch? I mean, I, I probably will watch Daleks in Manhattan Evolution of the Daleks. Again. And I would end up watching, um, well, my go-to, which is um, The Rebel Flesh. Oh, yeah. that's another one that Still ties in. Still my favorite. My introduction to Doctor Who, at, you know, years of knowing people that were very invested, very much, had seen a lot of the old series and probably read books. My first introduction to Doctor Who was the second to last Rose episode. Well, until she comes back. Uh, um, fear her? No. It was the two-parter. The two-parter. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So the first part Army, of that was Rose. Yes. Yeah. That was my introduction to Doctor Who. And what a fucking introduction. Baptism by fire. Um, and so I have so many thoughts and feelings and understandings. And um, so, yeah, going back and reading a lot of this stuff is helping me, like bridge the gap and really come to classic who with 
modern who perspectives right. i guess no no I... um and so yeah like it really a lot a lot of times like you guys perspectives on things are totally different than mine but right. i'm i'm like i'm doing it backwards I could see, I could imagine that some of these companions do run a bit milk toast for you because once you've been introduced to Rose. <sighs> or any of the well, new series ones where they. Yeah. That's the biggest difference between the new series and the old series. When you strip away, like, the visual effects and all that kind of, and the pacing, mm-hmm. which would be mine, would be the emphasis on the companion <laughs> relationship. Unless you get, of own. course, unless you get, of course, the high concept companions that Stephen Moffat likes who aren't really people. Uh, yeah. Clara. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, I mean, to, I didn't hate Clara, le- but to it's... a lesser degree, Bill. But but honestly, too, since oh, I have since one, a lot of these, a lot of the classic Who is unavailable to watch, and the only thing I have to go by is the stories. And we've even discussed in the podcast that a lot of times the failure of the character development is really the what they're given to write from and really the writer having like constraints right um you so, didn't have a head writer you didn't have yeah. a show runner and that's the big you so didn't have consistency so that's where my failing with a lot of the these earlier companions comes from it's not even like the fault of the companions being bad people bad characters bad anything it really is just like a lot of a lot of bad things just aligning to make right. them fall flat um, but I, you know, I've enjoyed them. We, the last Barbara and Ian story that we read. I, oh, yes. I love them. I was sad to see them go. And, like, I was even mad about them being, like, romanticized. I was like, no, they are not a couple. <laughs> but bear in mind, that also is one of the few classic companions that actually feel very characterized in the same way as the new series would characterize yes. them. Yes, they were, they were fully fleshed out characters. Yeah. Um, Especially in the books. They're given backstories in yeah. the books that they were never given on Overall. Screen. Overall. Yeah. Even, I rem- yeah, even even reading the first one we did. We did... Uh, oh, the first one we did. Um, uh, Edge, Edge of Destruction. Destruction. Even yeah. Edge of Destruction, as my that was my the first story that I read, I, I had a feeling for who Barbara and Ian were. I've since gone back and read An Unearthly Child. Um, and so I got that mm-hmm. actual introduction to them. But. Which isn't much of one. Daleks is a better one. Yes, but uh, but uh, but even that, even reading Edge of Destruction, having not read anything, seen anything of Classic Who, I was like, oh, yes, yes. these are totally people that would be doing this thing. Exactly, and that's why you have Nigel Robinson, who's another author who cares very much about backstory and mm-hmm. fleshing things out, doing the best he can there. In fact, John Peel's the first New Adventures writer, Terrence Dix is the second, then we get Nigel Robinson, so you've got the three big ones who did Target books and did them effectively, and then you get Paul Cornell, who completely breaks the mold, recasts it, and recreates a new... And who is a Target novelist now. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. We will will eventually be looking at that one. Eventually. And my God, it is... So it, it certainly is. And so is Stephen Moffat's. I was kind of surprised. I finally got through that one and I was like, my God. So, anything uh, else you have to say about this one? Uh, let, me, let me just look through my notes real quick. Yeah, just yeah. some things Absolutely. that I highlighted. Um, just the description of the doctor's hair. As ever, it looked like a family of rats had spent an evening fighting in it. Oh, for heaven's sake. That's uh, a bit too much. I just like that description, though. Uh, <laughs> that is something like 
maybe it's just because I've been finishing watching Pose and everything, but that sounds like a drag queen read. Yeah. You know, it does. Like, yeah. Well, like, that and Peel is one of the few writers who pay attention to uh, the Doctor's fingernails. They'll notice how non-existent they are. Troughton has tiny little short nails. Yeah, and he even makes reference to it in Power of the Daleks and in the televised version. When the Doctor regenerates, he says, oh, fingernails need growing. It never happens. Sounds strangely obsessive, actually. A little bit, yes, but you notice that the new series does it. They choose something that stands out about the new Doctor, and they say, oh, the ears, oh, the nose, oh, the eyebrows, angry eyebrows. Is that where we're going oh, next? You we, know might. we might. He's got oh. pecs. He has a nice quad. Where did these come from? Um, Yes. Uh, so, something else. Yeah. Uh, just I have I've never seen any second Doctor stories. Um, so we have to rectify that. We need to change that. But uh, the first second Doctor. <laughs> that's confusing. The first second Doctor story. I you know I loved the Doctor. He was it was comedic. It was it was lovely. So there's a there's a little bit of that in here. Um, every now and again, uh, there was a moment in the antique shop. With, with Jamie. Now do be quiet. There's a good fellow. He held up a warning finger and don't knock anything over. He set off towards the door at the rear, brushing a plinth as he did so. The tall, expensive-looking mock Chinese base on the plinth swayed and fell. And amazingly, that's in the episode and that's in the existing episode. You get I love to it. See it. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's good. so good. That's like that's a little bit of the comedy that I. I'm enjoying. It's like, it's you know, there. if he wants to see a second Doctor one, you know, the next story is Tomb of the Cybermen. That might be a good one. I, I would think so. I think only four parts. Too. I know. <laughs> I think that it might be one that we watch together and then do our reactions to it. Yeah, that would be fun. Because our Patreons would like that. Of course, our Patreons are still waiting for our reactions to uh, the Moon Base because I haven't edited it yet. It'll happen, though. Anything else, Dalton? Um, I'm just looking through the things I highlighted. He knew how much the Doctor hated representatives of officialdom to intrude in things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just kind of that idea of the Doctor wanting to be in control. Oh, I guess, yes. As it were. Um, Even when the Doctor is working with figures in authority, he hates authority. Yes. In fact, I think, Trey, the very first discussion you and I had may have been something about how I felt that the Pertwee Doctor was the most conservative doctor because he worked with the unit, and you said, oh, no, 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 I disagree, and you actually switched mm. my mind on that. Because, yeah. Because he trounces every every authority figure he meets while he's in, I think he was Aesthetically, in. he's posh and upper-classy and snobby and everything, but he's... Which, in a way, is almost a reversal of Trouton because aesthetically, he's he's a bit of the Cosmic Hobo, but, I mean, mm-hmm. he has a sort of... Authoritarian's not the right word because he's anarchic, but he, he certainly, if he thinks there are some corners that have, you know, he's a bit George W. Bush, you know, at evil access, you know, that sort of thing. You know, if, if I think this is evil, I will stop it. Yes, that's true. And that's, mm-hmm. so there's, it's an interesting... Which leads into the next thing I had. Uh, before, before we had known, well, we knew it was the Daleks, but before the Doctor knew it was the Daleks... Uh, his suspicions were crystallizing now. One of his old foes had to be behind all of this. The problem was that in the course of his travels, he'd managed to annoy or seriously offend a large number of species. <laughs> he did have a tendency to meddle with things when there were clear cases of oppression or outright evil, and he stumbled across such cases more often than he cared to think about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. He... Which is an interesting thing to say about the Troughton Doctor, because if you think about the Hartnell Doctor's record... He really doesn't, not until the end of his run. 
Right. You know, the the whole speech to Barbara and the Aztecs about not meddling in other people's affairs, um, which we have discussed to length about the hypocrisy yes. there. Of, yeah, right, Doctor. Yeah. Uh-huh. So much so that sure. one of the BBC books writers actually made that an active lie. <laughs> I still need to read that book, but it sounds fascinating. Um, I just I highlighted uh, his respiratory bypass was to no avail here. Has there ever been a mention of... Uh, oh, yeah. That's that's Peel taking later stuff and putting it in here. Yeah, retrocon. I, yeah. I, I thought it was like a retcon. Yeah, yeah I asked him about exactly that. He said, is. yeah, because later on the Baker Doctor will talk about having a, resp- a respiratory by- bypass system and not really being able to be gassed, even though the Doctor gets gassed a lot. Yeah. So that's what I thought, though. I, th- I was like, I don't remember reading anything about anything of this happening. That's so later that's... stuff. He also makes reference to a screwdriver. But it was the screwdrivers back in the TARDIS. But the screwdriver was in the last story, so this wasn't the first appearance of that. Exactly. If we're thinking in story order. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I think that's Peel's sneaky little peek at yeah. the sonic screwdriver when we do get it. Speaking of Dalek construction, uh, someone appeared to be constructing a subspace bypass through his left frontal lobe <laughs> and using twice as many jackhammers as they really needed in the process. That's a hitchhiker's reference. Um, I think that's whenever the doctor was waking up from the, yeah. the uh, gas. It's also a Douglas Adams reference. Um, hmm. So good. So good. And that reminds me of something very funny that John Peel said about writing the first uh, New Adventures book. He apologized to Terrence Dix, and he said, you really should have been the first one to do this. And Terrence Dix said, but my dear boy, you got all the flack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, I, I highlighted the um, the description of the their laboratory. That was it. Was a good description. Oh um, talking about all the coils, Brilliant. and the glass, and all of that. It was a lovely description. It reminded really me like... of every single one of Julia Hoffman's laboratories on Dark Shadows. They all have that late sixties aesthetic. Definitely yeah. not a time where I minded the the paragraph of description for the room. Right, it really helped add. And and seeing as how they came back there many times throughout the story, I that think... helped you really get a, a feeling for the space. Yeah. I think. You know, going back to my earlier idea about when his description wasn't too much when it's about me, I think I figured it out. It's when it's when the description is being used to set a mood or create a visual in order for me to see what's going on, then I love it. If it's going through excruciating detail of what is actually just a minor secondary action, then mm-hmm. why? So describing yeah. behaviors versus describing settings. It's the reason I why I can't read Ernest Hemingway's Big Two Hearted River Part Two. Because it's I know how to put a lure on a fishing rod. Thank you very much. I don't need a line by line description Just of it. Just tell me you put a lure. Yes. Yeah. It may have been innovative at the time. I don't know how, but it was considered innovative at the time. Whereas this, yeah, this is just extra. It's when it seems extra. And that kind of says something about the original story, too, because the original story was seven episodes, and I still don't know why, because it's much more a six-parter. Mm-hmm. In fact, you How? said it was three three sections. It really is three sections. It's, it's two it's, episodes it's, per section. Yeah, it's like London, the estate, Victoriana, and Scarra. That should have been it. Except there's an extra episode. How do you know how they were separated? Yeah, like how what the timeline was. Yeah, so like? the London bits are about one and a half episodes. Okay. So because they get transported in the middle of episode two, mm-hmm. and then you've got the rest of episode two. Episodes three, four, and five are on the house. 
Um, the cliffhanger for episode five is the the friendly dogs pushing him around. So then episode six has a little bit, there's probably about five minutes where they say, we must go back to Scaro, and then they go there and they blow up the house. So almost two episodes worth is on Scaro, the, okay. the dog's planet. So it's really where it's really pad would be um, middle section. the middle section episode for Jamie's Quest. Which is almost... That's, that's what could be trying Almost always the case with seven partners. Yeah. Yeah. The middle sections tend to be padded. Except for Inferno, that one seems to work okay with its padding. Because of... Because it was originally four-parter and needed the extra... But they did the parallel universe thing, and then that creates that extra level of tension when he gets back to our world, because you know what's going to happen. Yes, and made it from a mediocre story into a great one. And you just... The performances are so good. Oh, God, yeah. And you... You were the one who referenced it, like yeah. faceless ones. We're like, I'll have to do it all over again, you know. And that was—it's no use. I'll have to go through the whole wiring system all over again. Yes, yes. editing the faceless oh, ones. Oh, Petra, yes. Because I had just watched it on Twitch, and I was right. like, "Girl, I know how you feel." <laughs> my, oh my god, they are—they are, oh, they are echoing. They are echoing again. That's I have to go through the whole thing all over again. So that feeling story. of just what, uh, just utter utter hysteria in her voice sheila dunn's perfect there she's great That's oh my god yeah jane i i would not want a whole episode of jamie's yeah and well, it's like it's, it's not a whole episode worth of no. well i think i think if they actually did more visually it might be interesting just, well yeah i mean it gets a bit indiana jonesy and super <laughs> mario brothersy but i mean the thing is hogwartsy <laughs> It's all physical too. I mean, I mean, there's a bit like where he says like he had to have compassion to help Kimmel and everything. But, but um, you know, where are the intellectual puzzles? Where are the emotional struggles? You know, you know, where's the you know you either have to rescue Victoria or you know you have to rescue Kemmel or something. You know, those would there's other forms of like if you're testing what it means to be human. If you really want to put Jamie through the ringer, this like you know, yeah. You know, Winchester Mystery House crap. Yes. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just very surface. And the remaining hanging question, who did all the subcontracting on Maxwell's damn house? The same people who did the Winchester Mystery House. I guess so. They, 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 the same, was, there's someone like Harrison Chase or someone. Like, <laughs> you know, higher than... It's like, goddamn. Especially when you get the guillotine blade yeah. coming down. It's like, who the fuck put that up? It wasn't a Dalek. Well... I don't know, maybe, I mean, Maxwell's not the only man in the in England who's got a dungeon, so, yeah. you know. That's <laughs> true. Maybe he <laughs> bought it that way. Maybe that's why he didn't just... like Ruth's mother so much. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, we haven't yeah. even talked about the uh, potential homosociality in this story, because women are treated very differently. That's why I wish Allison or um, I know, Jimmy were here, because there are some gender dynamics going on in this story that are worrisome. <sighs> Well, and, I've touched upon them a bit. Yeah, right and there. one of them is going to be along but, for Tomb, and Tomb has much more interesting ones. And you, and the racial stuff in Tomb is a bit more pronounced as well. Which is weird, because it's not on the page. That's something I've noticed. In fact, I'm a bit of a preview. There's a lot of misogyny in the televised version. There's just outright racism in the original. It's not on the page. It's almost as if someone said, Jerry, come over here. You can't do that, love. No, 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 no. Just take that out. Just no, no, no. I know it was great on screen. Yeah, I, we all loved it. Take well, it I out. Take it out. 
It's not know? there. Yeah, I was that's... waiting for it. It's not there. And you'll you'll see when we'll talk about it. Because I'll show it to you. Yeah. So, anything else? It just I'm still getting through my notes. No Sorry, guys. No, that's fine. Um, that's fine. We have a lot to talk the, about. The... Uh... There was almost nothing more awful for the Doctor to contemplate than being stuck in one time and planet for the rest of his life. Foreshadowing. Because you know what happens to the third Doctor. Oh, wait, wait, you don't. (laughs) I don't. He does. Spoilers. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know anything about I mean, I'm assuming. I am such a bad um, boy. I love that, though. I love that because, I mean, we've kind of understood that. It's kind of, it's there without saying it. Yeah. Clearly. He wouldn't be traveling through time and space, like, all willy-nilly if he didn't want to be free. Um, Also, there was that. There was a lot of bringing up of, like, Victoria looked at the birds outside that were free, and she was locked away. (laughs) Oh, God. But but there's also that, that, like, parallel with the doctor. I was thinking that. (laughs) I I was thinking that moment in um, Sweeney Todd. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Literally feeding the birds outside. Oh, my gosh. that being separated yes. not having his he mm. is trapped yes. in yes. that way um, and at the time I was reading it I was like okay yes we get it she's trapped in this like room <laughs> stop bringing up the birds outside that are free fly, whatever but but just now I'm like oh duh the doctor uh, uh, Victoria like, knows why the cage birds sing. Sing. Yes. <laughs> um this is making me wish we read more Peel books from now on because this is the most Dalton's ever talked in a podcast. I told you earlier, it helps <laughs> if I read on my computer and I actually take fucking notes. <laughs> Sorry, everyone who listened before. Uh, I'm, oh, inco- I'm inconsistent. Nah, um, you're not. No more than the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what does some American ghost story writer have to do with anything? Oh, I know. Uh, Loved it. I love that. <laughs> That's Maxwell's line, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I'm surprised Maxwell even knew who Edgar Allan Poe was. That's what I was thinking. It was like, is this a little too like? They would have been. He, he Poe died in 1845. You lie like a rug. He died in 1849. Sorry, everybody. So his work would have been yes. available. I was just wondering like how widespread it was. was. The British certainly knew about him. They did. It was better known he was better known in Europe for his poetry, but that's mostly in France. So yeah, they'd know. Don't be so melodramatic. You've been reading too much Walter Scott. Uh, <laughs> didn't could, you have not like with Jamie yeah, even? Re- yeah, Jamie. Ha- I can guarantee Jamie has not oh, read Jamie, any Walter Scott. Is Jamie. He's well. Did they talk about teaching him to read in a later story or something? 
And I can't remember which one, but it's a Zoe story, I think, which means... Well, because just... you've always got the Doctor and Zoe, like, yeah. being a little bit snooty towards Oh, they Jamie. are so mean to him. But by that They're point... They're so fucking smug. <laughs> I love it. But then Zoe is smug with everybody. But then, but then the Doctor and Jamie will be smug towards... There is a bit of... Yeah, I love that relationship. That, that's a brilliant great, family that's a... dynamic here. What I find interesting about this book is they are trying, in the same way they did with Sam and Jamie, to ship Jamie and Victoria. And that never happens. No, there's no romantic tie ever. I think Victoria... Well, one way, but not the other. I think Victoria yeah. works really, really well. and On the page. I think she works well <laughs> on the page. And I feel like... But I think that the dilemma was like, they had this, I mean, her name is Victoria, and yeah. she's this aristocrat who's sheltered, and so of course she's going to be timid, and of course she's, and in some ways, there is an element where she can be the brave, a very brave companion, if you to define it by someone who was scared and having to overcome and face their fears. Yeah. But I think, and if you think about the way her story ends, you know, there is a tragedy she, she could be a very tragic figure. And they can't, but on one level, they want this to be a lighthearted adventure. And I think that's why the character doesn't ever quite gel. Because I think it should be, it should be someone who, you know, it, I mean, she is very traumatized. She is the most, and she's one of the few companions who will later on voice her trauma. That's true. That's true. Which, in one, which on a certain level is very cool. And, and it's, it's good that they do that. But on another level, it, it puts it at odd at tones, especially when you've got the second Doctor and Jamie comedy show going on throughout. Yes, at the same so there's time. A, so there's a real, I, I think there's a, there's Sometimes a dramatic the tension scene. there that doesn't quite always work. You got Victoria over in the corner going, <laughs> and then the Doctor and Jamie are pulling each other's legs or doing whatever. Yeah. It, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. I think it's not helped by the fact that, uh, I'm going to speak ill of the dead, I apologize. Deborah Watling was a wonderful woman. In many ways, she was not exactly the strongest actress when it came to Victoria. There are moments when she does she does pathos really well. Tomb of the Cybermen, we'll get there. And she does her moments in this story really well. It's just every once in a while. And again, I just, I'm not sure if, if that's one of those situations where it's how the character is written. Because if, if you're told as an actor be weak and demure and trembling and everything, but then she does a really good job of it. Having seen her with her tits out in Danger <laughs> UXB, I can attest to the fact that she's a strong actress by the 70s. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, she's still quite young. She's still fresh to this. She may be part of the Watling acting troupe, right. but she's still kind of new to it herself. So, yeah, it varies from story to story, I think. I tell you, I think... I warmed to her more in 2013 when we got more of her episodes back. That's true. Because that I see some of, like, you get to see more of her actual physical acting. When we see the enemy of the world, you're like, yeah. oh, wow. She's, there, she's pretty good at There that. are depths there that we yeah. had not noticed before. Sorry. We're getting ahead of ourselves again, aren't we? Do you have other things in your notes? Um, we are just the silent partners. We condone the killings by our own compliance. We are just as guilty because we stand by and do nothing. Relevant. That's fucking oh, relevant. Relevant. Right, everybody. That is very relevant. Uh-huh. Silence equals violence. Russia didn't um, interfere in our elections. Goodness no. Right. Standing by while innocent people are shot down by the police. Uh, oh, that, yeah. That, uh-huh. And that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of shit like that. But there's there's so much there, like this like social commentary that... 
has been kind of heavy-handed in a lot of the other stories we've done. Or there have been, like, yeah. broader themes that were very, like, shoved down our throats. And this one has, like, a lot of smaller things that are kind of sprinkled throughout. Whitaker is particularly good at that. You'll see faint glimmerings of it in Real and Space. But then that's Whitaker translated by way of Terrence Sticks. Mm-hmm. So that always gets a little problematic. Same thing with Ambassadors of Death. Um, I just like the line, your need for sustenance and periods of unconsciousness are known to us. <laughs> the, 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 just, yeah, the Dalek uh, uh, talking to... Uh, we think they're stupid, to. but we know about them. I just, I, yeah, I just love sometimes their, their way of speaking is so direct, but also like confusing. This mm-hmm. isn't PC, but it's like, they're a bit... Like on the Asperger spectrum, yeah. You know, it's like yes. Yeah, so what you say? Your need for something oh like painfully a... literal and oh you my know. God. Well, um, well, confusing. There's um, something to that. If we're talking about Asperger's, is a condition where emotions are not always understood completely nor expressed in standard ways. Yeah, that would that would fit Daleks. Well, it actually fits with the whole theme of the story, actually. The human it factor, really does. You know. It really does, because by the time we get the human Daleks, we realize that's all they needed. I mean, we get the big finish story in which a Dalek is injected with something like the human factor, and it realizes... So when did the, the Beatles release All You Need Is Love? Is oh, that contemporary? Oh, <laughs> yes, I was actually, afraid you were going to go there. Actually, <laughs> yes. Was it really? Uh-huh. You looked it up? No, I know. But it's 67. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. But, of course you know, Sergeant it's Pepper's... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. See, we're experts in Doctor Who. Dalton is definitely an expert in Beatles stuff. I'm, oh, I have lots of niche knowledge. Oh, so, like, um, my boyfriend actually last year did a Sgt. Pepper show, and they did the whole album. When was Sgt. Um, Pepper's again? 67, but I don't know the month or anything. But the, do you know the, 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 the uh, month? I think it was summer, so it was, like, June, July, August. After this. Mm. But it's but in the, the Beatles air. are in this still very much. Yeah, now, the Beatles like in the televised version, Paperback Writers was playing on Coffee Bar. Yeah, and even in like the audio release, they couldn't get the rights, so they put yeah. in a different track. Paperback was a it was a single, right. not an album track. Oh God, don't tell me that because I'm gonna have. I'm going to want to put that in the podcast, and I know we'll get dinged. Yeah. It'll be the one time we get dinged yeah. if I try to put even the fraction of that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never um, mind. <laughs> yeah, no, the only reason I know that is because Wes did a show mm-hmm. that was... Imagine you're hearing it right now. In fact, go to yeah. iTunes and buy a copy of it, because now you can Gets us around it. There you go. Um, which brings <laughs> us back to John Peel, because what is John Peel? Oh, God. It's a paperback writer. Oh. Ding, 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 ding. I only have one last thing that I took and a note for. And shares the name of the DJ. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go ahead. So I took a note for that. It's kind of like, uh, what? Um, <laughs> so Jamie and. Um, Kimmel? Kimmel. 
Sorry, I've had a little wine. Um, there were swords and even a couple of suits of armor. There were several battle axes and a couple of flails and maces. None of them would do more than scrape the paint off a Dalek casing. Yet, tripping it with a rope and slinging it against the wall is enough to kill it. Of course. It's 1967. Have you seen Kemmel's arms? In the well, they described him as being like this beast of a man, which I'm, I want to see. Yes, Show him some telesnaps. Because I have a type. But still, I was yeah. like, you can't beat it to death with a mace, but you can just like... Oh, where's the Kemmel Jamie slash fiction going to happen? Uh, yeah. You're the one to write it. No. <laughs> I'll edit it. <laughs> The, that's the last. I was we just have like, to test you through. Oh my gosh! Oh my it God. writes itself, doesn't it? Yes, it we is. have to study every human interaction. Oh yep. As he falls <laughs> off the balcony and Jamie grabs his hand, there's like that slow motion. See, but wind. his first encounter, he's like in a darkened tunnel, oh and this big muscular man is Patreon, moving. Stay with us. Like... Stay with us. Don't go. Don't go. I promise you, we will not do this oh as a Patreon God. extra. Even though that's the first thing that went through my head. Oh my lord. The J.B. Kimmel audio drama. Um, Lots of wine. He doesn't even talk. Exactly. Lots of wine. He just grunts a lot. It's just someone reading stage direction. Oh my god. The idea of Sonny Calden as grunting his way through. Um, Oh, I need more wine. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yes, Jamie. It is a big one. So that's all I have highlighted. Um, <laughs> that's all you have highlighted. <laughs> uh, we've, we've we've covered everything else that I've uh, thank, had. Thank God. Um, is there anything else though that, that you feel like we've missed, or that, that you feel like we haven't? <laughs> I'm not sure. I trust myself to bring it up. Uh, do we want to take a minute just to look through the notes? Uh sure. Let's just let me let's do just that. Look through the notes because there was a. There was a lot here. There was a lot here. There's a hell of It's a big here. book. It's a big, thick. I like big, big book. books and I cannot lie. <laughs> oh my god. I, I will say this about Kemmel. Peel gives him all this internal dialogue that makes him much more intelligent seeming on the page than he seems on screen. Because yes. he really is the noble savage on screen that Allison would have hated. Yeah. But on the page... He it's, comes across much more yeah. well-rounded. It's much more leavened than it was. And I love the line about the Dalek flying disc. If you have to wonder, what the hell Jamie and the Doctor get up to when there's nothing else to do? Because apparently he gets to see all these moving picture books with Daleks in them. And he knows them on sight. And the, do- the Doctor's like, oh yes, I, Jamie, I, I encountered the Daleks many years ago. And they were terrible. This is terrible. That, I'm sorry, I can't do a good trout. No one can. No except one for can. Fraser Hines. Except for his son, yeah. And Fraser Hines. And yeah. Fraser Hines, ironically enough. Um, yeah. I don't see anything here, except for the fact that I kind of got mad at the doctor for a moment at the bottom of page 128, because he knew, despite his insistence that Jamie make his own decisions, he knew exactly what would manipulate Jamie into rescuing Victoria. And he does it. Douche. I know. I know. That's the thing about the second Doctor. In some ways, he's a dry run of the manipulative Doctor we get with the seventh Doctor, with the McCoy Doctor. Because, again, re-listening to Tomb of the Cybermen, I'm struck by Mm. how little of that story would have happened if the Doctor just would have just walked away. Mm. 
but we'll get there. Anything you want to say, Trey? No, I said it. Okay. Then I think it's time to go to Goodreads. Um, As we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere that I can see it so that we have a chance to see it. Before discussing the book ourselves, you might just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for the story out of five stars is surprisingly 3.94, which is high, but it's not as high as I thought it would be. Here are some sample reviews. Paolo Carvalho gives it four stars and said, What means having the human factor? What does it mean to have the Dalek factor? This tale takes back to the 19th century, where the Daleks are trying to figure out what makes humans human. As they test on Jamie, the Doctor uses three Daleks as subject as per accord of the other Daleks. They are transported to the Dalek homeworld. The Doctor meets the Dalek Emperor, where he says that the Daleks are doomed since some of them are now human. That's not quite what happened. You know, I, I, I'm so over these Goodreads reviews that are just fucking summaries rather than reviews. Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I was just thinking the same. Sorry, Paolo. The Emperor, <laughs> the emperor review, reveals that all of that research was to have a Dalek factor and put the Dalek working for them. That Doctor a fucking review! As he would travel through time and infect the Dalek factor in all human race. Yeah, and there's also all these mistakes. Of course, nothing of this happens. Since now some of the Daleks are human, they have free will and start questioning the Emperor orders and it result in full civil war. I should have read this before putting it in. Quite a critique on humankind, Mr. Directors of Doctor Who. Yes, Mr. Directors. And yet you gave it four stars. What means this? <laughs> okay, Michael Otway gives it three stars. And he says, a fun story. Well worth the read, but suffers from the constraints of its origins in serialized television. I've always wanted to read this. The story of what was supposed to be the final end for the Daleks. I think maybe after reading what it was about, I had built up in my mind as something quite epic. But really, this is a very small story. 90% of it pretty much takes place in a house. (laughs) 90%? Yes. Takes place in a house. The exciting parts are all pushed and crammed into what would have been the final television episode. So, that's actually true. So you get a book that drags on and goes around in circles for about 240 pages, 288, darling. And then gets, oh, I see what he's doing. And then gets really good for the last 50. It's a solid read and and well worth picking up. But definitely not for the prices you find them for on eBay. Slow and a little too long, but in general a great book and a very satisfying finish. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> what, not worth the prices you pay on eBay for it? No, a satisfying finish. <laughs> and finally, Adam James gives it five stars, saying most Doctor Who novelizations are breezy retreads of the original broadcast. With Virgin taking the reins of the Target Library, they called upon D.W. stalwart John Peel to novelize both Trout and Dalek stories, and the result is outstanding. Stretching the narrative to a more substantial 200-plus pages, Peel expands the scope of the story as well as the emotional motivations of our stock 1960s characters. The Doctor becomes far more manipulative and reflective. That's true. Jamie becomes more thoughtful and distrusting of the Doctor. That is true. But it's on screen, too. Kemmel, the Turk, becomes, well, 
slightly less than an embarrassing stereotype. You mean slightly more than an embarrassing stereotype, I think. Considering that Evil Daleks doesn't exist on screen any longer besides the entertaining second episode, John Peel's adaptation is especially necessary for all serious Who fans. All right, well, let's get your impressions. Let's get your scores. Dalton, what out of five stars? Um, hmm. Uh-huh. Mike, leaning between 4.5 and 4, so I'm going to go 4.25. Alrighty. I'll sit right there in the middle. Um, yes, this was not a breezy read. It wasn't an easy read. Right. It was a very enjoyable read, though. Um, I liked getting to know Jamie better. I liked, even though it was kind of uh, laborious at some times, getting through some of the parts. I did, I did like seeing it go. And we talked, I talked about this earlier. How I kind of, I liked how I kept being surprised, and it kept giving me more. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this was one of the longer books we've read, it it felt very much worth it. Okay. Um, so yeah, like four point two five. Sounds good. I'm good. Trey? Four stars. Um, you know, my criteria is always to, how does this work as a novelization? And I think it is everything you want a novelization to be. Um, it is a straightforward adaptation. It, you know, fleshes out the characters. It repairs some of the plot holes from the televised version. Um, it doesn't reach the same literary quality as, say, a Donald Cotton or the novelization of Ghostlight or a Malcolm Hulk one does, which is where I kind of store my five stars, you know, for those ones that really, <laughs> the ones that really like, you're like, this is actually a good piece of writing on its own without it yes. being this, um, you know, John Peel's a hack writer and he's a very good hack yes. writer. This is true. You know, and I, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean, I think it's... He puts out a lot, and he puts, he puts it out a lot, and it's, 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 it's very readable, it's very good, but it doesn't have maybe that wow factor that I would expect for a five-star. But if every target novelization were like this, I'd be very happy. So four stars. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I can't remember I can't remember what I gave Power of the Daleks. I think I may have given that a four, which means I would have to give this a 3.75, only because... Judging those two books against each other, you kind of have to do. This is the lesser of the two. It's not the lesser story of the two, but I think a lot of the problems with it stem from the original and not from Peel's adaptation of it. He's got seven episodes that he has to do as opposed to six. Evil of the Daleks is slightly overlong. Uh, this book is slightly overlong. There were times I was like, oh my god, can we just get away from the farm? Oh, I was thinking about Walking Dead. Yeah, <laughs> can we just get away from the farm already and find what's-her-name zombified in the barn? By the way, spoiler alert, she's zombified in the barn. And we, yeah, and by the time we do get to Scarrow, there is the payoff. Finally. Peel is extremely good at writing action. There are some writers that cannot do it. John Lucarati is incapable of it. John Peel can. That being said, yeah, this, yeah, 3.75. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we take a look at Tomb of the Cybermen. Joy. In the meantime, 
If you've liked, actually, I mean that seriously. It's Matt Smith's favorite story. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces, like some maniac wrote it. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Or subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice. You can find us everywhere. Just Google us. Damn. Do you want us to do all the work for you? Jesus. Use your if space all, phone. I know. If all else fails, you <laughs> your space phone. Next next time we I've got a funny joke about that. If all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yes, Jamie, that is a big one.